you can rebuild a motor, reboot your computer, even kickstart the old scooter. But what do you do when your own mojo is mutilated? That's where we step in. Welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Hey everybody and welcome to this week's edition of the Mojo Radio Show. Nice to have you on board. Thank you for hitting the download button. We do appreciate it. Again, another big week ahead of us. A couple of guests coming in to say g'day on the Mojo Radio Show. If you haven't yet, folks, do us a favour, jump onto iTunes, leave us a review. It does mean a lot for us. It helps us get the message out there. It ain't a lot. We don't have any sponsors, unfortunately, on the show. Hello to our friends at Dosecki and Tim Tams. <laughs> However, it does get our mojo working when we hear from you guys. Mm, We're also on Twitter. Uh, just, in fact, you know the easiest way is go into Twitter, search the Mojo Radio Show. It's at TMRS. P-O-D, The Mojo Radio Show Pod. There is some good stuff being posted by the Little Mojo Radio Show gremlins who are busy on social posting stuff. Check it out. Say good day to us. We uh, like. Is that what they do today? Is that what the kids today do? They like it, or they they retweet? Oh, I don't think you like it anymore. I think you just retweet it. Yeah. Oh, there we go. That'd be that'd be pretty cool. Um, saying good day from the driver's seat of the big red bus, Robbo. Big week ahead again. Another big week ahead. And can I just say, a big week last week, John Lee Dumas, I didn't think about it at the time, but listening back to it was actually a really good show. Well, I don't think you do that many shows and be considered one of the leaders in the world of podcasting. I don't think you do that much mm. without picking up a little something-something to apply to your own world. That's right. You know what we forgot to ask him, though, was I occurred to me listening back to the show, was that we forgot to ask him if he ate cricket powder. Yeah, it doesn't normally come to mind as one yeah. of my uh, primary questions. But it would have tied in nicely with the episode. Maybe we should add that to the Evernote file of great <laughs> questions. But, but, but don't touch your dial because you've got a treat coming up with a batch of real big stars. The Mojo Radio Show. So we've got a repeat guest. Professor Lee Waters is a psychologist, a researcher, a consultant, an author and public speaker who specialises in positive psychology and positive education. But I think in her resume, probably the thing she's most proudest of is she's a friend of the Mojo Radio Show. Mate. Absolutely. And she's also a connoisseur of fine coffee, you forgot to mention. Well, after our last show with Lee, which was sometime in 2016, I believe, we had the privilege of having coffee with Lee and her friend, another positive psychologist expert, uh, Carolyn Adams-Miller, who was out from the USA. And the four of us met for a brew in Sydney. And I've got to say, just off the bat, in terms of positive psychologists, you would not meet a nicer person. What an amazing, beautiful, friendly, loving lady. Absolutely. And can I also say that that sitting at that table that day, I felt a little outclassed in terms of mental capacity. The two of them sitting at the table, wow, what a mix. So the reason Lee has come back as a repeat guest on the Mojo Radio Show is that Lee has a new book out called The Strength Switch. And it's going really, really well in the bookshops and on Amazon, I suspect. It's been called a game-changing book. Now, What this book is about is focusing on children's strengths as opposed to the default that a lot of us fall back to, which is focusing on the negatives, what they call a negative bias, or they call it a strengths blindness. The only thing I'd say before we get Lee on the show is 
don't be confused or don't be misled that this book is just for parents. In reading the book, and I've been through it a number of times, I think this book is for everybody. If you're a leader, if you have a family, if you're in a community group, if you're in a social group, I think this book is valuable. And I have to agree with that strengths blindness, that default we have is to look for what's not right. This book turns it all around, is very prescriptive of how to do it. And I'm looking forward to really digging into not just the parent side, but the leadership side in every aspect of life, in business, corporate world, our own personal lives. So Lee, it's with great delight. We welcome you back to the show. So great to be back. Thanks for re-inviting me. I take that as a as a good sign. <laughs> well, we love you and so do our listeners. So nice. I love being loved. Yeah, love being loved. It's like a good rock band. It's about the second, it's the second album, not the first <laughs> album. So this is the second album. So this is going to be a killer. Okay. Does that mean there's a lot of pressure? There's always a lot of pressure on the second album. There's a lot of pressure on, let me tell you, except here in the studio. Now, I'm going to take you back a ways. This new Go book you've got out, we're going to delve into that, but I'd like to... I'd like to explore the night in Philadelphia at the World Congress of Positive Psychology, which sounds like a hoot. Mm -hmm. Um, That's where the book actually came to mind and came to be. Just take us through that night. Yeah, that's that's it's um it's one of those moments where you know I think we all have those moments in our life where some seemingly small thing ends up creating a very big change in your life, a big shift in your trajectory. And so, um, you know, I've I've been a psychologist and a researcher at the University of Melbourne for two decades, um, working in the field of positive psychology. And as a result of that, um, was lucky enough to score an invitation to Professor Martin Seligman. He um, hosted a sort of cocktail party the evening before the World Congress of, of Positive Psychology, this is back in 2011. So the World Congress of Positive Psychology is the kind of preeminent conference all across the world. Researchers and practitioners from all across the world come along and meet for three days and uh, learn about the latest science, share and exchange practice. Well, Marty had a cocktail function at his home because this year, that particular year, it was hosted in Philadelphia where he lives. And he brought together um, a group of us from across the world who are applying positive psychology and researching positive psychology. My major focus at that point in time, and it still is actually one of my major focuses, is um, the application of the science of positive psychology into schools to have that early intervention approach to teach children at a young age a kind of psychological toolkit that allows them to um, better manage their own well-being, build optimism, build resilience, and therefore prepares them to handle the um, curveballs that life throws at all of us along the way. And I was having a conversation with Marty about the application of positive psychology in schools. He was asking me, you know, how's it going? And um, I was saying to him, it's so great that we're doing this in school. I wish when I went through school that I had have had this kind of uh, learning and knowledge. Um, But my question is, what happens when kids go home? And that was a question that I being asked a lot of from the teachers that I was working with, you know, we're doing all this stuff at a school, but if it's not reinforced at home and in some homes, you know, very sadly, it's kind of actively um, worked against. How do we help parents understand the science of positive psychology and bring it into their role as parents so that they're parenting in a way that is building the resilience and the optimism of children? Um, 
So I was chatting with Marty about that and I, you know, I said, who's doing the research on this? Because as a parent myself, applying it myself, I could see it working. But obviously as a researcher, I want to know there's an evidence base. This is generalizable. He said, no one, no one's doing the research on this. And I said, you know, that's a real shame. And um, he said, you should do it. (laughs) And I balked at that idea because my PhD was in organizational psychology. Um, I spent the first 10 years working in corporations and then had moved across to schools with that kind of passion of the early intervention approach because I have two school-aged children, but certainly didn't see myself as a parenting expert. And so I said to him, look, you know, that I'm not the right person for this. It's not my background. It's not my training. Marty, he's very direct in the way that he speaks. And so he pretty much just challenged me and said, okay, so you're a qualified psychologist. You're an expert in positive psychology. You're using this approach with your own children in your own home and you're helping young kids in schools to learn these skills. So what about that sentence makes you not qualified to do this research? You know, that's when I noticed that my wine glass was empty and I had to, you know, have a the conversation <laughs> going pop up. Taxi. And I was a bit reluctant, to be honest. I was reluctant to take on this new kind of program of research because I'd already reinvented myself once from organizational psychology to educational psychology. And, but I can tell you that I went to that Congress the next three days. I scoured the scientific program, just hoping, hoping, hoping that someone would be presenting some science on how you apply positive psychology to parenting. And I didn't find that. And so on the 30 hour trip home from Philly to Melbourne, just really had this, I had Marty's voice just looping through the back of my brain, like, why not you? Why not you? Why don't you do it? And by the time I got off the plane, I was like, you know what? I have to do this because as a parent myself, seeing how I'm applying positive psychology and seeing the benefits it's having for my two children, I I can't keep it to myself. This is such an important gift to be able to share with as many parents as possible. And I just need to, 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 um, take the baton that has been passed to me and do this research. And that was that. (laughs) Lee, are parents feeling kind of a little overwhelmed by the pressure of expectation that society puts on us? I mean, every day you open up a blog, a newspaper, maybe a podcast, there's a story on television, a documentary, and it's all about the five things you should or how to do this or how to do that or the 10 things you need to know about. Are we... Are we kind of a little bit overwhelmed by that and not really focused on this, the important stuff to help our kids flourish? I think so. I mean, I'm a parent myself and, and I get easily overwhelmed. As I think the overwhelm comes from two reasons. One is just it's such a different world. Um, the world that we're raising our children in is so different to the world that we grew up in. Um, you know, we're raising our children in a world of trauma, terrorism, technology, um, so that creates a lot of parent anxiety. At the same time, um, as you say, we're getting, there's kind of advice everywhere. We're always getting fed advice about how to be good parents. And it, it can absolutely be overwhelming. I'm, um, I'm a very conscientious person. And so I, I read a lot of parenting books, especially when um, my son was first born, um, just really craved and lived off parenting books and then would find myself getting conflicting advice from different books and not really sure which one to do. And so what I think is nice about the strength-based parenting approach is that um, 
you start with the skills, the talents, the positive aspects of their personality that they already have rather than compensating for what they lack. So it's focus is first on building up strength before you focus on correcting weakness. And so what's kind of reassuring about that approach, and I think it kind of cuts through all the different parenting advice, is that it's not about an expert's advice telling you what to do. You start with your child. You start with the strengths, the skills, the talents that your child already has. That's the anchor point, and that's what provides you with the roadmap. So anytime you're feeling uncertain and you're getting all this external advice, just turn back to what you know about your child. What are his or her strengths? And how do I help them to see those strengths and build those strengths? So it really, it's very, um, it creates a profound change for the child and for your relationship with your son or your daughter, but it's also very concrete and very simple. You talked in the book, and I love this statement, you said it's the right intention, wrong Mm -hmm. direction. What's right and what's wrong? Most, Most parents, have the right intention. And that is that, you know, we love our children and we see our role as kind of taking our child from a newborn, journeying with them through their childhood, through their teenage years. And our intention is to help raise them in a way so that when they become adults, they're sort of fully formed, robust, um, resilient people who um, do well for themselves and do good by others. And so that's the right intention. What I meant by saying we've got the wrong direction is that most of us as parents um, inadvertently think that the way to get that outcome, the way to create a, a kind of fully formed, robust, filled out, fleshed out adult is to fix up what's wrong with them, is to plug in the holes, is to fill in the limitations. And by doing that, by fixing their weaknesses, that's what helps them to get to successful adulthood. And I think most parents, not all, but most parents do do that lovingly. It's, it's kind of like this loving narrative of I love you, so that's why I'm going to fix what's wrong with you. Um, but from a child's perspective, if that's what you hear regularly throughout your childhood, you kind of grow up being very, very clear about all the things that are wrong with you and less clear about the things that are right with you. And, in fact, the science supports that. Um, the psychologists in my field have identified this phenomenon called strength blindness. And this is a phenomenon whereby um, most of us don't truly see or understand the strengths that we have. And that's partly a function of the way we're raised, partly of the function of the fact that because our strengths are kind of inborn, we're so used to them that we take them for granted. We don't see them as a special feature or anything that's kind of um, a strength or unique for us compared to, to someone else. And so what I meant with the right intention, wrong direction is that um, we have this false assumption that filling in the hole and filling in the gap is what's going to create a fully formed adult. And I, my kind of counter argument against that and what my research is showing is that we can get the same result, like a, a sort of fully formed adult, not so much by always plugging in the holes and fixing the gaps and putting putty in what's not there for our children, but actually having um, the different direction, and that is building up their strengths. Because the more that you amplify and grow their strengths, what happens is that these weaknesses no longer limit you in your life because you can use a strength to kind of counteract that limitation. I'm going to set this up, Lee, as a, as a, as a question for you. But we were about to start recording and Robbo said, so Lee's book is a book about kids and parenting. And I said, well, 
It is because the book's called The Strength Switch, How the New Science of Strength-Based Parenting Can Help Your Child and Teen to Flourish. Having read the book, I, I'm curious to know since the launch the anecdotal evidence you have of people taking this into leadership in a corporate environment, and I'll tell you why. Yeah. Last week I was in Melbourne. I was doing a gig, 100 people in the audience. I was a keynote speaker. Guy in the front row was a big, big boy, young guy but big, like really big. But when yeah. he walked in the room, Lee, he had this – beautiful nature about him. Like his eyes were shining and he's obviously people liked him and he had, he's had a mojo going. And I, as soon as he walked in, I noticed him. He sat in the front, got his journal out, took notes, asked questions. At the end of my gig, he walked up and he said, thanks very much. Really enjoyed it. Got a lot from it. And I said, you know, I noticed you coming into the room. You've got such a good vibe about you. I said, your eyes were sharp. You were taking notes. I've got to say, you really, you really look like someone's got their mojo working. But, brother, you could look after yourself. I said, you, you're going in the wrong direction. And he then shared the fact that since he started this job, he dedicated to the gig for six months and he put on 25 kgs. Wow. What I thought of later on, Lee, is that generally when you look at someone like that, the immediate reaction is not positive. But this guy, because having read the book on the plane going down, and I sort of, and it was just, it was an innate thing to recognize what was great about this kid first. And then when I brought it up and said, not there's anything wrong, but you're better than this. You, you need to look after this part because it's, it's not, not good. And he went into a positive dialogue about what he was going to do to get back on track again. I guess I'm threading this together from Robbo saying is it a book for parenting. It is, but I don't know. It seems to me there are some really strong leadership things that we can take as a parent, but also apply to the big kids we lead in a community group or in, in, a, in a corporate environment or in a startup. Have you found that? I absolutely have, and I'm so glad um, that you have had an insight about that. I'll, I'll, before I um, answer, like, what feedback have I got from people who are not parents who've read the book and said, this is, you know, the idea underneath this is relevant to leadership, et cetera. When I first pitched the book to um, Penguin Press, the publisher, publishing house that I published it, um, the editor who was interviewing me, she she's based in New York. She's also the editor of Carol Dweck's book, um, Mindset. And she said to me, you know, there's a really big idea underneath this. And, um, and that is to, you know, flick your strength switch to focus first on strength before you fix weakness. And she said, I don't, you know, why are you making it a parenting book? Because it's really just a people book. This is really a book about how you create human flourishing, how you help others to flourish. Um, and even then that little um, conversation you had, Gary, you know, where you said you're reading the book. So automatically your brain is scanning for the pattern of strengths. So you just innately recognize this young man's strengths because you call that out for him. It changes the nature of the conversation and he starts a whole positive. Dialogue. And um, so she was asking me, why don't, why not just write this as a, as a, just a general book? Um, for me, my, my personal passion is early intervention and it, it's about helping to equip young children with these skills. Um, and I, my motivation is driven by a number of, um, for a number of factors. One is I, we need to create change in our society and the, the people, the, the, the children who grow up now are going to be the change agents. These are going to be the people who are leaders, bosses, politicians, 
they're our next wave of school teachers, they're our next wave of corporate leaders, they're our next wave of um, doctors, they're our next wave of scientists. So I feel that if I can introduce these concepts that everyone has strengths and that when you play and amplify and build to your strengths, this is when you really hit your full potential. If young children can learn that, this is going to create a shift towards a a more strengths-based society. So for me, there was a big passion um, to find an avenue to bring this book and this science to young kids. And obviously, um, a major avenue to do that is through parents. Second motivation was, you know, I'm a parent myself. I know Gary and Robbo, you're both parents as well. And it's a complicated role, you know, it's complex. It's like we are the CEO of our children. Um, you know, we're responsible for their physical development, their emotional development, their psychological development, their cognitive development, their spiritual development, their sexual development, you name it. Like we are the CEO. We're responsible for all of the departments and the buck stops with us. So it's a challenging role and parents are reporting high levels of stress. In fact, you know, three out of every four parents, the statistics are showing, are saying that they feel regularly stressed and overwhelmed as a result of their parental responsibilities. And so for me, I think writing the book for parents was also a way of giving a gift to the parent themselves, not just the child. Because, you know, you, you see in the book, a big part of the book is um, inviting parents to not only help see and build their children's strengths, but to also help see and build their own strengths. So what we know about strengths is uh, strengths are the things that you do well that energize you when you're doing them and that you're self-motivated to do. So take an audit your role as a parent And how can you bring in more of your own strengths in your role as a parent so that you're more energized, it's more enjoyable for you? Um, And then the third motivation for me was just my own, my own history, my own um, backstory. I was um, raised by a mother who had a very severe mental illness. And um, there are a lot of, I'm just going to put this politely, there were a lot of challenges in my childhood. In my teenage years, I developed an eating disorder. So did my sister. Uh, In my 20s and early 30s, throughout that whole decade, a lot of anxiety and depression. And because I know I've lived firsthand what it's like to have your mental health taken away from you, I'm so committed to doing everything I can to protect and support and build the mental health of young people. Just while we're on that point, what would you say to someone who looked at the book and went, well, hang on, my parents brought me up without any of this sort of fancy schmancy positive psychology and I've turned out okay. Why do I need that? What, what would you say mm-hmm. to them? Oh, that's so great. It's that whole mentality of if it's not broke, don't fix it. Um, but, you know, what we're learning in positive psychology is, you know, the absence of a problem or the absence of a weakness is not the same as the presence of potential, the presence of a strength. If I use myself as an example, you know, I went through um, years and years of therapy. I trained to become a psychologist. I did so much work. I mentioned before, you know, I'm very conscientious. I did so much work on myself, doing all the right therapeutic techniques. And I finally got myself to a point where I no longer had an eating disorder and I no longer had depression. To be honest, anxiety is still with me. Um, I choose to kind of manage it a bit differently now in my late 40s, but um, I got myself to a point where I no longer had depression. Well, the absence of depression is not the same as the presence of happiness. They're two very different states. So this whole idea of if it's not broke, don't fix it, you know, 
not not having a problem to fix is a different state to saying let's work with potential and build that up. I just want to take you back a step, Lee, because I think it's critical for people to understand this. I mean, the the most profound books and, in fact, the most profound music songs, great, great lyrics come from suffering. And you said, and this, I think this is quite interesting, you said in the book that there are times where to the outside world you were a successful, high-performing achiever, but the inside you were suffering from bulimia, you felt empty, you were suffering anxiety, and you were carrying years of pent-up sadness. What, I, what I'd like to know for someone who's now doing beautiful work at the front end for the world, yourself, society, back then, when you think about it and you put yourself back in that place, what did it feel like? And what was the first step or two steps you took to take yourself out of that dark place that we could learn from in case there's someone listening who, because I reckon it's a big issue. I think people are, to the outside world, it looks good. But inside, they're broken. And sadly today, that broken part can lead to disaster, as we've heard with a lot of rock stars that Robbo and I have spoken of during our show. When you put yourself in that place, how did it feel and what were the steps you took to get yourself out of that darkness? I was in darkness for a long time. Um, What were the feelings? It's it's just, it's um, exhausting. It's absolutely exhausting. It's like, it's just this loop that you feel like you can't get out of. Um, I carried a lot of sadness. Um, and also a lot of shame uh, because the messages I got as a child is that, you know, there was something broken and wrong with me and, you know, that's why my mum couldn't kind of provide me with the love or nurturing or care that little kids need. Um, it's a really, it's, it's darkness is the best way to explain it and just a feeling of I'm, this is never going to go away for me. This is, this is what I'm stuck with. Um, what I, what got me out of it was, Therapy, absolutely. Uh, so I started um, seeing a psychiatrist in my early 20s. I got diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. So having a diagnosis was actually very helpful for me. Um, and working with a therapist, um, I moved on from a psychiatrist to a psychologist. And what I really think helped me, but I didn't know that at the time until I was in my 30s and I and this whole new science of um, strengths came forward. When I retrospectively look back now, I realized that whether I knew it or not, I was drawing on a lot of my strengths. So, um, you know, one of my strengths is intellect. And at the time I was having therapy, but I was also studying a PhD in psychology. Um, so I was using my intellect to get a better understanding of my childhood and of the, the kind of psychological issues I was facing and what I needed to do to move forward. Um, I was also using a lot of my heart-based strengths, you know, staying open-hearted, staying kind, not becoming bitter, um, and connecting with people, you know, forming good, long-term, loving relationships, which helped me just as much as the therapy, you know, just as much as the formal therapy, the thing that helped to heal me were the relationships in my life. And I didn't realize that at the time, but I was actually using my strengths to form those relationships. And a really key turning point for me then in going from just kind of overcoming depression to actually, you know, going from surviving to thriving um, was this, the science on strengths. 
and how it is that each of us have strengths that we're blind to them, but once we start to see them and capitalize on them and leverage them more intentionally, that's when we flourish. That's when we reach our full potential. And from a well-being perspective, um, that's when we have higher levels of well-being. So in my early 30s, when I came upon the kind of strength-based science, was reading it for myself, was reading it from the lens of, of about to become a mum and started to do the science in it myself. That was the huge turning point for me was to realize, hey, despite everything and despite obvious weaknesses and vulnerabilities in me, I also have these strengths and they're sitting right there. And whether I know it or not, they've been my life raft. They've got me through some really hard times. Now, I, now I've shined a light on them. I can see them more clearly. I'm going to use them to really, you know, pull myself permanently out of the darkness and not only do that, but be a person who doesn't just enjoy the light for herself, but really like spreads the light to as many people as she can through by using my own strengths, by using my strengths as a scientist, by using my strengths as a communicator, by writing a book for other parents. And as you said before, it's not just for parents. I've, I'm getting huge feedback from leaders, CEOs. I had a beautiful conversation with a therapist who rang me the other day just to say, I want you to know, you know, I'm using your book with my adult clients who have suffered trauma in their childhood. Amazing feedback from teachers who are reading the book and then applying these concepts. You know, I mean, you know, in the book, there's heaps of there's surveys, activities, exercises, tips, um, you know, routines, questions, conversations. And so all of those things, I mean, I've pitched them with the parent-child relationship, but all of them can be adapted to the workplace, to a therapeutic context, to teachers. I had a fellow email me the other day to say, I read your book. You know, I'm a dad. I read your book, but I think it's going to fundamentally change and improve my marriage. So it is... It's like the, the publishers from Penguin said, you know, it's, there's a big idea underneath this that translates to any relationship. And you don't just have to be a strength-based parent. You can be a strength helper in any context. Your good friend, Martin Seligman, who's like the Roger Federer of positive psychology, I think it's fair to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, I don't know if you know this, but he's a big big fan of the show. He uh, we, we call him the Martinator, the master. Uh, he would love it. He would love it. Marto. That's it. And he said that we learn optimism or pessimism from our parents in our early childhood. Yeah. And so when you learned that, you figured, well, if I learn it in early childhood, then it makes sense that I can unlearn it, which I think is very profound. And the simplicity of it is where the sophistication is. With mm-hmm. that in mind, Lee. What have you learnt then about your own personal definition of success or failure? Wow, that is such a beautiful question. Um, so, yeah, you're right. I mean, I was doing a lot of the science, reading a lot of uh, Marty's work on the fact that, you know, one of the key aspects of our personality is whether you're more optimistic and see hope in the future or more pessimistic. Um, I typically fell along the more pessimistic line Um because of the reasons that I explained to you before, but I decided, you know what, if this is something that we learn, we learn it from our parents. We learn it from the way our parents explain life to us. So if you have parents, if you have a setback or a challenge and you have parents who explain that optimistically and say, it's okay, it's just a one-off, it doesn't mean you're a bad person, there's hope for the future, then you internalize an optimistic um, mindset. If you have parents who um, say, you know, this is some fault in you. It's never going to change. It's going to pervade everything. Uh, but also the way they explain life challenges to themselves. So they may not even be explaining it to you. They may just, you may, you learn the way your parents explain life's 
challenges and you, you kind of parent that. But it's learned. So the good news is that you can unlearn it. Even as an adult, you can unlearn it, um, which is what I said about doing. And I think probably um, to, to get onto your specific question, I would say that when, um, when I was in my sort of mid-20s, at that point in time, I didn't even feel like happy. I didn't even feel like I could achieve happiness. So it wasn't a goal for me and it wasn't a measure of my success. I felt like my measure of success is much more to do with objective metrics. Um, I did very well in high school. I went on to the University of Melbourne, Australia's top university. I went on to do a PhD program. I was selected into the InterVarsity team to play basketball for the University of Melbourne. So uh, it was all about achievement. Um, and then I think, you know, I went through my own kind of personal transformation. And I'm, I'm not going to say that achievement's not important to me anymore. It, it is kind of hardwired into me. And I do like to achieve. It makes me feel good about myself. But what I've learned is that um, the deeper happiness comes from self-knowledge, from true self-knowledge, knowledge about your strengths and your weaknesses. It comes from deep self-compassion, um, speaking to yourself the way you would speak to your children, showing kindness, allowing yourself to make mistakes. And then I think my third metric of success is how do I use my strengths to contribute positively to the lives of other people? You know, how can I be of service with what I know and the strengths that I have to help others? And so it's not that achievement isn't there, but it's just a much smaller slice of the pie. Yeah. Yeah. And I understand now that happiness is achievable for me um, and a state of contentment is it's achievable. It's not there all the time. Um, it, there are moments where I have contentment and that's because I'm doing a lot of mindfulness and managing my anxiety. But the occasional moments where I get it, I'm like, yeah, woohoo, this is great. I want to come back to this. When I think back over the last couple of years of the show, Lee, of which you've been a part, and I think about some of our guests like um, former Navy SEAL Andrew Paul, your mate Carolyn Adams-Miller, um, caveman coffee stuntman from Hollywood Tate Fletcher, um, recently uh, a mental toughness world expert Dr. Jason Selk, um, Lauren Handel Zander out of New York, who is a personal trainer. Who the the theme we've had through all that is resilience and grit. And you talked about the two vital psychological tools of optimism and resilience. Where are we at with our kids today? Like, what's the trend you're seeing around resilience and optimism? Well, there is. Um I mean, I'm going to put my scientist hat on here and say the evidence is really mixed. There's um, there's some evidence that suggests that, you know, uh, we're raising awareness in our kids, you know, we're parenting them in a different way to the way we were parented. We are giving them those kind of psychological skills and the toolkit. We're understanding and prioritising the importance for resilience and optimism. I mean, the fact that we're even using that word, I don't think that was a word that our parents even used, to be honest. Um, so in one way we're ahead of the curve, uh, but there's also a lot of counter evidence to show, you know, snowflake children, um, children who are low in resilience. I know Caroline, you know, she's got a lot of evidence to show that millennial generations are low on grit. You know, they don't persevere. They don't stick things, stick things out. I, I'm always a little bit worried about generalizing that because, you know, I do a lot of work in high schools and I see, 
amazing and inspirational examples of young children who have really high resilience and really high grit. I do think that they're two important outcomes as a parent. For me, you know, the way I see my role is right now I'm the CEO of Nicholas and Emily. Um, but if my role is successful, what I'm doing is making myself obsolete. I'm turning mm. Nicholas and Emily into their own CEO. So they become self-empowered and they're able to direct their own life. And so I'm really, you know, at the very start of this whole journey, have decided that I want to get myself to a point where I, I'm obsolete. They, I'm their friend, I'm their supporter, I'm their mum always, I'll always be there to love them, but they will internalise these processes and they'll be able to make um, self-empowered, directed decisions. And I think psychologically speaking, the two most important skills for them to become the CEO of their own life are optimism and resilience. Optimism because it helps you to plan positively for the future. Um, and resilience because it helps you to bounce back when things don't go so well for you. The basis of the book is about finding strengths and building upon them, so making that switch. And at the same time you said, but it doesn't mean ignoring weaknesses. Mm -hmm. Earlier in the show you talked about the putty. If we can explore that further, where? Yeah. how do we approach weaknesses? Is there a place for them? What do we do? Where do we put the putty? When do we put it? Yeah. That's a lovely question. Um, and that is one of the kind of misconceptions that people have when I talk about strength-based parenting is they, they hear it as an either or. Um, and, you know, so naturally enough, they come back and they're like, well, does that mean, you know, isn't that a bit unrealistic? Does that mean I just ignore my kids' weak spots? Um, and the answer to that is no, it's not an either or, it's a both and approach. It's just that your emphasis is first and foremost on the strengths before you turn to fixing the weaknesses. So it's not about ignoring the weaknesses. When it comes to um, weaknesses, problem spots um, with our children, you know, we're all pretty good at doing that. We've got a society that constantly is telling us what's wrong with us and how to fix it. We know to get extra tutoring. We know to use discipline. Um, we know to get therapy if a child needs it. So it's really, you're just using those more traditional ways. But I think that one new avenue that strength-based parenting gives us as parents is this question of, okay, so my child has this weakness, this weak spot. Um, instead of just directly focusing on the weak spot, is there a strength that I can use that can help to overcome the weakness? Um, the stories in the book is a story of uh, my daughter, Emily, she's 10. And I mean, she's, she's my daughter, so I think she's amazing and beautiful and she has heaps and heaps of strengths, but she also has weaknesses just like all of us. And one of those weaknesses, which she's very well aware of, is her impatience. Um, she can get impatient quite quickly and then that, you know, has consequences for her in class, in terms of her learning, has consequences for her in terms of her friendships as well. And so that's a weakness that we know. And Matt and I have tried for a long time to kind of like minimise, reduce, shrink that weakness. And to be honest, we just haven't been successful. It's like it's, it's what she was born with. It's really part of her personality. So what we're now doing instead is we're coming at the weakness from a strength-based perspective and we're drawing on two of her strengths. She's a very curious little critter. Um, so in the classroom now when she's finding herself getting impatient, we're helping her to connect up with her curiosity and to ask questions and to be engaged. And the minute she becomes curious about something, she's no longer impatient. Um, likewise, in, in friendship issues, She's very kind. She's just a super, super duper kind little girl. And like her impatience, that's been something that's been there since she was born. 
So now we're teaching her that in that, that moment where she's, you know, her friends aren't keeping up with her, she's suggesting a game and they're not following what she she's saying, instead of getting impatient, to think about kindness and to think about what would her friends feel like. And again, so the minute she uses this strength, all of a sudden the impatience is softened. And so it's, what strength-based parenting does is it's not about ignoring weaknesses. You either just approach them head on like you would always do anyway or you come at a weakness from a position of strength and you ask yourself, what's the strength in my child that I can use to help address this weakness? What do we do to find those strengths, whether it be in somebody we work with or in our 10-year-old? You've talked about kindness. You've, you've identified these strengths. Take me through somebody finishes this show is going to get to the office or get to home tonight. They've got somebody in mind and they say, great, tonight I'm going to focus on the strengths. How do I, tell me the process that I need to go through to identify what is an actual strength to be built upon. Mm-hmm. So um, there are a couple of things you can do. And um, just to let your listeners know, I have a whole bunch of like free resources on the website, the Strength Switch website which is just such a great starting point for anyone who wants to learn how to be a strength helper, whether that's a strength parent or a strength leader, um, strength teacher, strength friend, whatever it happens to be. So the first thing is to be clear about what strengths actually are. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, strengths are the things, in order for something to be classified as a strength, it has, has to have three elements. It has to be something that you're good at. It has to be something that energizes you when you do it. And it has to be something that you're self-motivated to do. Um, Now, in our society, we often just focus on that first element of performance, and we might make the mistake of thinking that because our child's good at something, then it's a strength of theirs. But if it doesn't have that energy and self-motivation piece underneath it, it's not really a true strength. You don't use the example of seeing two children learning the piano, and and they're both, both performing at the same level. They've both got the same level of technical proficiency, but you've got one child that doesn't really enjoy it. You have to keep nagging them to do their practice. Even though they're good at it, it's not necessarily a strength. You've got the other child who yearns to play the piano, can't can't even walk past a piano without being compelled to just quickly sit down and um, play a little number before they move on. So it has to have these three pieces. So that's the first thing for, for anyone is to start observing people's behavior and look for evidence of those three things, performance, energy, and self-motivation. Um, there are also lots of surveys out there that you can do that help you to identify your particular profile of strengths. Like I said on um, my website, I've got some of those surveys up there for free. Engage in this technique called strength spotting. So that is, you know, really looking at actively looking for what is the strength in this person, you know, going into a work meeting and telling yourself, my major agenda for this work meeting is to look around the room and spot what I think the strengths are. It's a little bit like you were saying earlier, Gary, when you were down in Melbourne and you were giving that talk and you saw this young fellow come in and you just innately started to recognize his strengths. So that's the technique of strength spotting. And another just really easy thing that um, parents can do in home or you can do in any context is just to start to incorporate strengths into the questions that you're asking. I mean, as parents, we ask our kids, lots of questions every single day. Um, And it's about integrating strengths into those questions. In the book, I talk about, you know, instead of asking your kids, how is school today? Well, I mean, I don't know about you two, but I never get really a very great response when I ask my two kids, how is school today? 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I mean, well, I've got a teenager now, so sometimes I don't even get a word. I just get like a noise, yeah. you know, like a kind of grunt. Often I'll just get that look like, really? Are you really going to ask me that question? You know, um, when when my kids were younger, they were more earnest. They they genuinely wanted to answer the question, but I think half the time they just had forgotten what had happened at school that day. So, so instead of asking how was school today, ask them what strengths did you use at school today? Um, or what strengths did you see someone else use at school today? If they've got a big project or event or assignment that's coming up, when you're asking them about the assignment, you know, what do you need to do? What do we need to get to help you? Ask them what strengths do you have that you think will help you make the most of this event or assignment or a project. If they come home from school and they've had a fight with someone, ask them, you know, what strengths do you think were missing that allowed this fight to occur? And what strengths do you think you could bring to this situation to create a repair and rebuild the friendship? So we're asking these questions of our kids anyway. Why not just start to integrate a strength perspective into your questions. You've talked in your book about gratitude, Lee, and I was just curious, and you said that every religion talks about the importance of gratitude, and Roman philosopher Cicero, who was also a big fan of the show, um, he, <laughs> he, called it, <laughs> he called it the parent of all virtues. Yes. From a positive psychology perspective, uh, with with kids, families, what have you learned about gratitude you can share with us that would help us navigate this world? Can I answer that in two ways? I want to answer it just kind of like um, what's the what's the magic ingredient of gratitude, and then just give you some really mm. practical tips to bring gratitude into the family or into yeah, the good. workplace. You know, so I think you know the first answer. What have I learned? What's the magical ingredient? Um, the thing about gratitude is, and what the evolutionary psychologists have helped us to understand is that most of our kind of emotions, um, behaviors, strengths have been programmed into our species because they help, they help the species to survive. There was an evolutionary adaptive reason for that. So, um, for example, love is the emotion that bonds two people together and it makes sure that the species procreates. And it makes sure that family members look after one another. But the evolutionary psychologists were like, okay, uh, we, we operated in much bigger tribes than just immediate family members who we had love for. So what was the emotion that helped us to make sure we protected the bigger members of our tribe, the, those members we didn't feel love for? Um, and what they identified is that there were these two key emotions. One was empathy um, and the other was gratitude. And so what gratitude does for us is, you know, someone does something for you, you feel this little burst of gratitude because you feel recognized, you feel seen, you know, someone's cared enough about you to meet your needs. The thing about gratitude is that it's pro-social. So when you feel it, you're almost always compelled to express it back to that person, either just through the simple words like thank you, but we often express it back through action. So again, going back to from an evolutionary perspective, someone brings you a bunch of um, new berries or, you know, a cut of the animal that was just killed. And then the next time around, when you have the fresh food, you reciprocate because you feel grateful for what they did for you, you reciprocate. So you have this pro-social action. And so gratitude was the emotion that was built into us as a species to help us survive. <clears throat> So that's, that's the power of gratitude is that it's a positive emotion. You get the benefit of it in the first place because you feel good that someone's done something good for you. 
but then it motivates you to do something good back to them or to pay it forward and do something good for someone else. And so it creates this really lovely kind of social glue between people. It's so powerful in a family. And I think when, you know, we often, we can, it's very easy to take each other for granted in a family. Life is busy. Uh, you know, everyone's in task mode, but just to be able to stop and say a simple thank you to your partner. Um, I had a situation a few years ago that the school that my children go to um, teaches a lot of positive education and, and I've done a lot of pro bono work with the teachers around that. And so I, I had just run a seminar for the teachers on gratitude and the importance of gratitude to create good social dynamics in the classroom. Because if we have good, safe social dynamics, that's when children feel safe and they, they're actually ready to learn. A um, couple of nights, a couple of days later, um, I had a pajama day. I'd worked from home and I'd gone on a bit of a cleaning frenzy, which is very unlike me because I'm not clean at all. <laughs> um, but I'd make the kids' beds. And I made the kids' beds. And that night when Nick went to sleep, I put him off to bed and he said, Mum, thanks for changing the sheets. And I was blown away. I was, And I felt so good that he had seen that little action and he'd recognised it and he had thanked me. And I was like, you know, mate, thank you so much. Like, that makes me feel really good that you've done that. Um, and he said, oh, yeah, well, you know, our teacher was talking about gratitude today at school. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> it kind of came around full circle to me. But gratitude is so powerful in a family. And it's something that we can easily let go of because, I mean, to experience gratitude, gratitude is about uh, recognizing and valuing the good things in your life. And, um Sometimes we just don't notice because we're so busy we don't recognize and notice the good things in our family. Or sometimes we notice but we don't take that extra step of kind of appreciating and saying it out loud. So it's a really powerful ingredient for a family. I do a lot of research on gratitude in the workplace too. It's a powerful ingredient for that. In terms of like some practical things to do to bring gratitude into the family, um, I love the idea of thankful Thursdays. So we have thankful Thursdays in my family. And um, on a Thursday, we make time to sit down and say, this is what I've, this is, these are the good things that have happened to me this week. And this is who I'm thankful to um, for that good thing in my life. Gratitude jars are always a great thing to have in, in the kitchen. Put some post-it notes beside a jar. And as you feel grateful for something, just quickly write it on your post-it note, put it in the jar. And when the jar is full of gratitude, then reward your family by taking them out to a cafe and kind of potluck pulling out some of the post-it notes and retrospectively savouring on um, the good things that have happened. Another lovely thing to do is just the kind of what went well exercise. So every night, either at the dinner table or when you pick your kids up from school or when you put your kids to bed, just ask them, you know, what went well for you today? Um, and just get them to to pick one or two or I try and do three things each day that I'm thankful for. They can just be tiny little things like I walked the dog or I got home and um, I got a hug from my daughter or, you know, I got an email that I was that made me feel really good. Um, very simple things. With all of those suggestions, though, never force gratitude. That's a counterintuitive. <laughs> and I think, you know, you must be thankful. Um, telling the kids to be grateful, that's, that's not going to work. It's about creating an environment where your kids naturally feel that warm, gooey sensation of yeah. gratitude. Yeah, yeah, um, So if my kids are not ready for what went well, they say, I don't want to do that today. I say, no worries at all. And then I just tell them yeah. what went well. For I them. love that cafe idea. That's a great one. The gratitude jar and then go to the cafe. That's a 
ripper. Do you know what's really nice about it is you get you sort of get two for the price of one because you have gratitude, you have the experience that caused the gratitude and you write about it and you put it in the jar and then like, you know, six months later when the jar is full, it's like you get to relive that moment again and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah that was really cool. Or you pull, the, pull one post-it note out that says, I'm grateful for going to the cafe today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm grateful that when this jar is full, mum's going to take me to the cafe. That's right. Again. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Well, Lee, we are very grateful for your time. You're a great friend of the show. And I, I like something you wrote in the book. You said you have a habit that when things are going well, you say to yourself, life's pretty good. Well, life's here in the studio, pretty- we have we have an esky full of Dos Hecky. We have a pack. Oh, actually, we don't. We used to have a packet of Tim Tams. It's now empty. <laughs> I don't know what happened there. We've just done an interview. <laughs> And uh, we've had a lovely chat with you. So from our perspective, we are very grateful for your time. We know how much you've got going on around the world with the book and your speaking and your travelling. And um, it's great. It's always lovely to hear you talk. Thanks, guys. I'm, I hope that album number two was uh, is received as successfully as album number <laughs> <laughs> um, But, yeah, likewise. I mean, it's, it's always great to talk to you guys with so such a joy to meet up with the two of you in person a few months ago in Sydney and have a, a Sydney morning um, brekkie coffee. Yeah. That was really great. And, um, yeah, you know what? Life's pretty good. Hey, you, you know now you've done two albums. The next one can be a greatest hits, right? <laughs> you can put that together for me. Just do a couple little splits and then I'll, like, kind of narrate it. Done. Do you know, I'm just going to just – I'm just going to finish on one little thing for you, Lee, and it kind of backs up what you were saying because I'd been reading your book and then I heard a guy called Gary Vaynerchuk. Now, Gary is, Gary V as he goes, is a very successful social media mover and shaker. Like he's an investor and he's got a very, very high profile. And he was being interviewed and he told the story of one day when he was eight years old that he opened the door for a lady and let her go through. And his mum noticed it. And he said, what was curious is that she praised me for three weeks afterwards. Like she made a really big deal out of it and kept praising me for my kindness. To this day, he said his purpose in life, and this guy is super successful. I mean, his profile around the world is very, very high. Mm -hmm. And he, he said his, his whole MO, his whole purpose in life is to be kind. And yeah. he, he traces it back to his mum of catching those times when he was nice to others and her reinforcing it, not just once, but over a period of time. So it was just coincidental I heard this interview and it made me think of the strength-based process for people, not just kids, but people. So I think what you're yeah. doing is, uh, is critically important. You've got the science, the data behind it, but then there's anecdotal evidence if you listen to it, listen for it and you're open to it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and he, he obviously had a strength-based mom and now he's gone on to be one of those strength-based helpers. And I, I couldn't agree with him more. You know, kindness is just such an important currency for our society. And now more than ever, this is what we need to be doing is turning towards others and saying, how can I help? and showing kindness. That's a good way to get out. Absolutely. Thanks, Lee. I look forward to the best hits. The greatest hits. (laughs) Radio Show. We don't take ourselves too seriously. Oh, thank God. So, mate, being August, that means that in some six or seven weeks, it's... Rocktober. I hope you've started working on it. I have. I've actually got a script in my hot little hand ready to start pre-promoting it from probably next week or the week after, yeah. Well, we've already had two amazing guests sign up for this year. Last year we had an amazing array of guests, including 
UFC cage fighter, caveman coffee leader Tate Fletcher, actor mm-hmm. in Hollywood, Ryan Munsey from the Optimum Performance Podcast, Dr. Charlie Teo, who was a brain surgeon. We had Ivor Davies, iconic Australian singer-songwriter. It's worth going back to Rocktober 2016. It was a cracking month. So much time goes into the production, the sound, the guests. They're a bit longer form. Marco Mendoza from the Dead Daisies, who played with Jess Rotel and Whitesnake. Wasn't he, he was good. on the show. Yeah. It was just a monumental month of rock content and life-changing information these guys shared. We've already got a couple of cracking guests locked in for this year. Production has started, as you can hear, with Robbo and AP. So uh, we are getting ourselves set for Rocked Up, plus some other little surprises we're working on the side where you, the listener, can benefit not just from the content but from stash stuff swag. We've got some really hot ideas, can I just say? <laughs> well, we don't know yet. We hope so. Yeah. The Mojo Radio Show. Now, let me play this grab for you. This was one of our guests from Rocktober last year. If you think about your brain as a computer, you know, all computers run on, you know, both hardware and software. Um, you know, so, so things like your belief system uh, and, and also your education about the things that you're trying to do. Uh, so uh, I'm trying to think of an example, you know, like if, if I'm a if I'm a CEO, then, you know, my belief system about other people and, and leadership and, you know, my education on how to lead and, uh, you know, uh, things like that, that, that's how you upgrade your, your software and your hardware. That was Ryan Munsey from Natural Stacks from the OPP, Optimum Performance Podcast, and he's the guy who shared the information about Siltep. Now, we had a letter recently from one of our guests saying, what does Gary think of Siltep? I'm a fan. I never do any speaking or big days without it. I do find it beneficial. I love it. But Ryan Ryan liked something I did on social media recently. We just caught it up and had a bit of a chat online. And he shared a line from a song. And this is going to be our lesson of rock to take us out for the show. So here's a pop quiz hot shot. The Mojo Radio Show. Pop quiz hot shot. Go. Well, I got this guitar and I learned how to make it talk. And my car's out back. If you're ready to take that long walk from your front porch to my front seat, the door's open, but the ride, it ain't free. Oh. No, you got me there. I would hazard a guess. It sounds like some Springsteen lyrics. No way. Did you know that? No, I didn't. It was just a wild guess. It's, that's definitely sounds like Springsteen lyrics to me. That's amazing. Well done. <laughs> that was a set up, folks. That is Thunder Road by The Boss. And the line that Ryan sent back, and I sent him a note saying, there's a guy with mojo. And he simply replied, he certainly does. Here's the lesson of rock that I love. I mean, the lyrics that Springsteen writes are insane. Mm. The doors open but the ride, it ain't free. And what that means is all the pod, to me, the podcasts are free. Mm. There's so much content, so much information, so much knowledge, but it ain't free. And unless you do something with it, you're just wasting everybody's time, most importantly, your own. And I love that line. The door's open to learn, absolutely. 
But the ride, it ain't free. You've got to put the foot down, put the rubber on the road, get it done, get after it, do something. So finish this podcast, take some notes from Lee, take some notes from Rodney, take some notes from AP. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be the day. <laughs> oh, do something with it, get after it. Just do one small thing because the door's open, but the ride, it ain't free. Here is the boss mm. with Thunder Rose. Screen door slams, Mary's dress like a vision she dances across the porch as the radio plays Roy Orbison singing for the lonely Hey, that's me and I want you only Don't turn me home again, I just can't face myself alone again Don't run back inside, darling, you know just what I'm here for So you're scared and you're thinking that maybe we ain't that young anymore Show a little faith, there's magic in the night You ain't a beauty, but hey, you're alright Oh, and that's alright with me You can covers and study your pain Because lovers, those isn't around Waste your summer praying in vain 
The Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybirtwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peter speaking. See you next time.